A moment ago, we read 2 Samuel 11 about David's sinful liaison with Bathsheba and then his orchestrating the death of Uriah the Hittite. And there seems to be some intermediate amount of time between David's sins as recorded here and Nathan's confrontation of him. We don't know how long that time might have been, but in that intermediate point of this story until Nathan's prophecy against David by the Lord, David was apparently attempting to cover up his sin. As I said, we don't know how much time, but we do know this. Immediately in 2 Samuel 12, at least as the written record occurs, even though there is time in between, 2 Samuel 12, 1 says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, "'As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die.'" And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, 
I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Again, one of the most heart-rending portions in all of the Word of God, and particularly the Old Testament. The king of Israel, David, who is representative, a representative Israelite among the people of virtue, of integrity, of power, and of presence as the king. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. And so sometime in the midst of David hiding his sin, and now David the prophet comes, confronts him about the sins, and David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And what comes out of the overflow of David's heart is a kind of pattern, a kind of preaching, a kind of example of repentance and the confession of sin. And in order for us to know exactly what David was thinking once confronted, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. I'll make a reference or two to Psalm 32, but Psalm 51, based even on the superscription, the little title up above the text in our English Bible, this superscription in Psalm 51, which by the way is actually verse 1 in the Hebrew text of Holy Scripture, as though this is also inspired as the title of this psalm And it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. There's actually in the Hebrew text a wordplay here. It quite literally says, when Nathan went into David, or him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. After Nathan the prophet went into David's palace to confront him because David had gone into Bathsheba sinfully and sexually. And Psalm 51, in this context, and as I've read now, chapters 11 and chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, the prophet Nathan confronts David with the truth that God, while being a forgiving God, will also judge King David's sexual sin severely by the death of the son of this union between David and Bathsheba. So Psalm 51 is the divine commentary, as I said, about now David being confronted by Nathan the prophet and what David does in response. Now, I want to say to all of us, my own heart included, Not all of us are going to sin the so-called big sins, like adultery and murder. But we all sin sins, whether little or great, 
And we're all in need of repentance and confession, right? So don't walk away, please, today from a message like this and say to yourself, well, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a murderer. This text doesn't apply to me. Well, because we all sin, and sometimes even sin in egregious ways, Psalm 51 is for all of us and more. And I want to make it very practical, as practical as I know how, by giving you five ways of repentance. Five ways of repentance. Five principles. Not necessarily steps, although I think these steps are in their proper order. These principles of repentance are for the application of all of us, even as Christians in the New Covenant age. This Old Testament portion, we could say, is Christian Scripture. Because it's for us. It's, it's an opportunity for us to learn and grow, especially about repentance and confession of sin and receiving the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. And so, with a, a very easy five-point outline with only three-word outline points, I want to teach all of us, myself included, about repentance and confession and forgiveness and the grace of God. And for the first of those outline points, it's very simple. Here it is in verses 1 and 2. Here's what you've got to do. When you're confronted about your sin, whether it's by the Lord himself in your conscience, whether it's by another person, uh, whether it's through any type of circumstance, whatever it may be, when you and I are looking for the principles of what to do when we are found out to have unchecked sin in our life, and uh, maybe like David for a time, we've rejected the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, but we are found out, whether it's the confrontation of someone to us, maybe another brother, maybe another sister, maybe it's from reading the Word of God, maybe it's from your prayer life, or maybe it's from other kinds of circumstances in which you and I are found out to be the man, to be the person. What do you do? Well, here's the first one. Pray to God. Pray to God. Look at Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. Here's what David prays. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And in, at least in David's case, it was what we might call a very heinous and what he assumed was private, which has now become a public sin. And yes, of course, there are differences between leaders, whether they be prophets or priests or kings of the Old Testament, or maybe they might be public leaders of today. They might be in the church known as pastors or elders or deacons, or they might be known in government as presidents or senators or congressmen. Yes, there, of course, is a difference between so-called public sins of public leaders or private sins that are exposed publicly 
as leaders, which affect all of those who are being led. And yes, there is a sense in which all of us, if we are just those who are in the pew, we are those who are in our own domain, our own little family, or our own little cocoon, maybe private sins there aren't as magnanimously exposed as a sin like this. But all of us can take these principles and all of us can apply them in very, very wonderful ways because when we all sin, no matter what looks like private or public exposure, we can all do this. And the very first thing we must do is we've got to pray to God. And we've got to pray like David prays here. And what strikes me in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 51 is that David is naming the sins by their acute definitions. Notice three words that he uses here in verses 1 and 2. And the first one he uses there is transgressions. Transgressions. You notice that in the bottom part of verse 1? Blot out my transgression. It means to rebel against God. That's what the word transgress means. It means that I've rebelled against God. It it can mean, even in certain contexts, like here in Psalm 51, I believe, to refer to a rebellion against God's known and revealed will. In other words, God is saying very clearly in the Old Testament law, the legislation about how to live as an Israelite in the people of God, in the family of God, and there is a very, very clear law about adultery, right? In fact, such a law brought what? Stoning. Stoning to death. Do you want to know why, in one sense, David was so heartened by the Lord's statement in 2 Samuel 11 that you shall not die? Because he should have died. Why why would the king of Israel be any different than anybody else in Israel? He deserves to die. He sinned by conniving and deception and ruthlessness, not only the sin of adultery, but also the sin of murder. He deserves doubly to die. And so he acknowledges it. In his prayer to God, he says, I have committed transgressions. I have gone against what your law says. It's clearly revealed. It's clearly manifested in Israel. I'm a king, even though he's not a priest or a prophet. I am a king, and I'm representing the people of God with my integrity and my honor so that they can follow me with their integrity and with their honor. And what I've done is committed transgressions against the Lord. I have transgressed his moral revealed will. He doesn't stop there. Notice the next word he uses, iniquity. Iniquity. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And this word for sin has to do with departing from God's prescribed standard. To depart from God's way of living life as it is to be lived is to commit iniquity before the Lord's watching eye. Iniquity. Transgression. And then a third word that he uses here, sin. Cleanse me from my sin. That's to miss the mark. That's what that word means. To to fall far short of God's character and design for conformity to his will. So David 
while he may have been hiding and shirking his responsibility to confess his sin for a period of time, and we don't know how much time it was, perhaps it was days, perhaps it was weeks, perhaps it was months. And when David comes, however, in into the realization from Nathan's words to his ears, from God himself working through the prophet, David realizes that God has seen it all and God wants David to do now the right thing. So what's the right thing? Well, he prays to God. That's what we've got to do. We've got to pray to God. And and what do we do when we pray to God? We say to God what we should say. I've transgressed. I've committed heinous iniquity. And I've sinned against you, Lord. Now, if you and I were to only say such a thing in our confession to God, I've transgressed, I've committed heinous iniquity, I've missed the mark, I've sinned against you egregiously, If that's all we were supposed to do, and if that's all we knew to do, there'd be no covering. There'd be no forgiveness. Uh, There there would be none of that. So what does David do? Well, he realizes, even though I've acknowledged my sin in my prayer to you, what does he ask the Lord to do? He says, blot out my transgression. Blot out my transgression. You know what blot out means? It means to wipe away, or maybe even more graphically and vividly, to scrape away. Scrape away my transgressions. Thoroughly remove my sin from me. Which, if we're using the idea, the vivid idea of scraping and removing, that might be a bit painful. Blot out my transgressions. He's praying to God and he says, Lord, scrape away these transgressions from my account. He he knows he's going to receive the consequences of them. It's already been told in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. He's already been told. These are the consequences for your sin. The sword shall never depart from your house. I'm also going to let your wives have done to them what you did to Uriah's wife. And oh, by the way, the sexual union that you had with Bathsheba, which was adultery, it was a transgression, it was an iniquitous act, it was a sin against the Lord, and the union has brought forth now a pregnancy, and that child shall die. I mean, those are, those are, those are some heavy consequences. But it doesn't dissuade King David to go to the Lord and pray to God, and it shouldn't dissuade any of us. No matter how heinous the sin is. And in a, in a way, in an interesting sort of way, does that not encourage us? You say, the sin? No. The fact that we can still go to God. That we can still pray to Him. That's so encouraging. And, and what do we do when we pray? We say, Lord, blot out my transgressions. And notice also He says, and wash me from my iniquity. Wash me thoroughly from it. Wash me means to launder, to make me white again, pure. You know, there's great symbolism in the Bible on white that's a symbol, a vivid symbol of holiness, of purity, and blackness as a sign of darkness and debauchery. They do their deeds in the darkness. 
He says, I I, I want to pray to you, God, and I want to ask you about these transgressions and these iniquities and these sins of my heart that you would blot them out, scrape them off of my flesh, as it were, spiritually speaking, and wash me thoroughly, scrub me up and down. I've got to be rid of this sin. And then he says, cleanse me. Uh, So maybe the scraping and the washing is the first part of the process, and the cleaning up is the next part. Clean me up. Purify me morally from the sins I've committed against you. And so we ask the question, upon what basis is David asking for such a thing? Is it because he got caught? I mean, maybe that's sometimes some people's motivation for wanting their sins forgiven because they were caught and it's embarrassing and it's shameful and they don't really want to go down to the nub of repentance. They only want to fix the outward circumstances so they're not such a blight on their life and their family and the lives of others. So some people, they want forgiveness, but they want it with the wrong motives. Here's what David does instead. I sinned against the Lord. He's already said that. I need the Lord's forgiveness. I'm going to, in my prayer to him, acknowledge my sin, and I'm going to ask him for forgiveness. But even in that, what right does David have for the asking of such forgiveness? I mean, in a sense, someone could make the case, because the Lord is holy and righteous, because the Lord is wholly separate from sinners, that he doesn't have to give forgiveness to anybody who's sinned. Especially the king of Israel, he could let him die. Uh, He could be hanged or stoned. He could be murdered himself for the murder of Uriah the Hittite. And not only did you realize in that story that he was trying to put Uriah the Hittite on the front line and then he told the other valiant warriors to back up so that Uriah would get the arrows in his heart And do you know that before that he schemed to make Uriah come home from the battlefield so he could lie with his wife so that if in fact her pregnancy is known, it could be said, well, Uriah came home. She's pregnant by him. He's trying to cover his sin there. And even though Uriah, who had much more integrity than David did at that moment, who wouldn't even go down to his house because he knew that he would eat and drink and that he would lie with his wife, but how can I do that when Joab and all these valiant warriors are in battle and I'm having fun here, I shall not do that. I shall be at that cot right there with the king's servants and I will stay with them because I don't deserve to go down there. That wouldn't be the integrity of any warrior heart, so I'm going to stay here. So David calls him up to the king's palace, and he makes him stay there, continually drinking wine so that he could get drunk, so he could go down and lay with his wife, because he wasn't going to do that when he was sober. And yet, even in his drunkenness, he slept in the same place and wouldn't do that which he knew wouldn't be the greatest amount of integrity. Now, that's a lot of integrity on Uriah's part. And it's a lot of sin and deception on David's. And yet David is is praying to God and he says, you're right. You're right. It's a sin. It's a heinous sin. And in a sense, I have no right to be forgiven by you at all. So what does he appeal to? 
Look back at the first phrase of Psalm 51.1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. What does he appeal to right off the bat, right in the first verse? You are a merciful God. You forgive those who egregiously sin against you. You are the God who keeps his covenant with his people. You are compassionate and loving and gracious and kind to your covenant people. I'm one of those covenant people and I realize I'm the king, but just like everyone else in the subjects of my kingdom who sin and sinned egregiously against you, I, like they, can only appeal to one and only thing, and that is your mercy and grace. In fact, you know that word mercy there is the word for grace. It's a word for grace. Be gracious to me, O God. That's the alternate translation here in the ESV. Be gracious to me. Lord, please, please wash me and cleanse me and scrape off these sins of my life in your grace. I know I should die. I know the consequences of my sin. I know what I've done to that lady, and I know what I've done to her husband. And even in the story, if you read it carefully, there were some in the acts in which Joab allowed David as king to orchestrate, it says, and others of the king's servants died also. There were actually others who shed their blood in the midst of this pullback, in the midst of the arrows from the enemy, all on David's hands. So what does he do? He appeals to God's mercy. And you know when you pray to God and you ask him to to forgive your sins, it's an appeal to mercy. Isn't it? It's, It's an appeal to God's graciousness. And for us, as New Covenant believers, we can say something like this, on the basis of the cross of Jesus Christ, on the basis of the forgiving of my sins by Jesus as he died for sinners like me on that cross, I am thankful that you have forgiven me of my sins. And as I come and confess them to you, you forgive my sins because of your grace and your mercy. You see that other phrase that's in verse 1, according to your steadfast love? That's, that's that word hesed. It's the compassionate, loving grace of a covenant-keeping God. God made a covenant, a promise with his people that he would forgive their sins and that on the basis of their confession of those sins, they're seeking to be right with God. He exalts his grace even above the sin. Not always above the consequences of such a sin, but the sin itself, the sin that would forever separate us from God, the sin that would take us away from a from a relationship with God to a relationship of estrangement. And yet God in His grace and His mercy sees King David in his deplorable position. And he hears such a prayer. Isn't that the greatest thing of all in this text? Is that God, even with us in our sin, actually chooses to hear our prayer. What a gift. What a gift. 
And so this, this is that first point. Pray to God. That's the first base of confession. It's the first step in repentance. And there is a second one like it. And it is this. Number two, confess your sin. Confess your sin. Pray to God. And secondly, confess your sin. Listen to verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This is the, this is the second principle of all doings with God in and through our sin, and it is to confess to God. You, you pray to Him, and as part of your prayer, because this second point builds off the first, in your prayer you say, God, I want to confess to you. And uh, confession, by the way, from a New Testament perspective, that Greek word for confession is homologeo, to say the same thing that God says about my sin. That's what it means. Confession. I'm honest with God. And boy, is David honest. Notice that first phrase there, for I know. That's, that's to agree with God about the transgressions we've committed. And what's even more important is that David further acknowledges that his sin is ever before him. I take it that as soon as the words came out of the prophet's mouth, David says, I sinned against the Lord and now this is all I can think about. I need to be right with him. I've got to go pray to him. And I have to acknowledge to him through my confession that the ends never justify the means. Never. It's never right to do wrong in order to be right. Never. And David knows this. So what does he do? He confesses his sin. I know my transgressions. And he uses that same word. And he says, and my sin is ever before me. And he uses that word again. In fact, in my own little Bible, I took a little highlighter and I marked every word that has anything to do with sin. Because it just jumps out at you from the page. Iniquity, transgressions, evil, sin. And what is he doing? David is saying, in my prayer to God, I'm confessing my sin to him. I've got to acknowledge it. I've got to own it. I've I've got to see it for what it is. And, And he even goes further. Notice what he says. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What does he mean? I mean, Bathsheba was, was injured. She was mistreated. She, she, was, she was not doing anything wrong. And, and David came and, and took her, and uh, the, the king wants to see you now. And she, she was having her period, and, and she was in a period of uncleanness. And, and once that was done away with, then David does what he does, and, and she becomes pregnant, and, and you don't do that with the king unless the king demands that you do such a thing. And so he really injured her. He hurt her. 
You can tell that by the fact that she was lamenting over the death of her husband. Mourning. My, my whole life is different now. My whole life has changed. And David certainly injured Uriah, mortally speaking. Oh, he wasn't the guy who actually pulled the trigger. He wasn't the one who raised the arrow, but he orchestrated all the events so that Uriah would die in battle. What kind of military commander is that? And so, can you imagine when Nathan comes and confronts his sin and he says, I've sinned against the Lord, all of those things are welling up within him. He probably is replaying all of the sins and all of the constituent elements of his deception and his cunning and it is making him miserable. Can't live with himself. He sinned against the Lord. He's got to confess. Do you know that confession of the soul for a Christian is tantamount to breathing? Because This is the life blood of everyone who's clean before the Lord. I I need your forgiveness. I need to know that we have a right relationship. Oh, for us as Christians in the New Covenant age, we know that we'll never be judged because our sins were judged at the cross. But even with our Heavenly Father as our Father, we want to know that in our confession, He's near to us. That He... He will come near to us by His grace and His mercy and His love. And we know that if we pray prayers while coveting or having our sin or doing that which we know is dishonorable to Him, we know that one of the other Psalms says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So we... We look at David and we see him replaying all of this in his mind. And what comes out is this. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. And I know I injured Bathsheba. And I know I had a hand in the killing of Uriah. And I know I was involved in sin and deception. But here's what I know. Ultimately and finally speaking, my sin was against you, God. And isn't it true? That ultimately all sin, regardless of who it affects horizontally on this earth, is a sin ultimately against God Himself. This is what He's saying. This is what He means. And and when we confess our sins in this way, by acknowledging that it's ultimately against God Himself, it's where we'll find true forgiveness. I mean, do you remember... You don't have to turn back there, but 2 Samuel 12, 9 and 10. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Can can you hear in David's heart through the ear gate, Nathan the prophet saying, this is what God is speaking to you. You've despised me. Who would ever want to be in a place of hearing the Lord God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all that there is, who is speaking through the prophet to you and me and saying, you despised me. Wow. You struck down Uriah the Hittite. Why would you do this evil in my sight? This is is why you got to confess your sin. This is a part of it. 
And, and the part of it that David appeals to is that he knows that God is justified and blameless in his words and in his judgment. Do you see that there in verse 4? He says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you, you God, may be justified in your words. You were right when you said that I was despising you. See, that's confession. You were right, God, when you said that I had sinned against you, that I despised you in the moment, that I kicked against all of your promises, and I wanted her, and I was going to do everything I could to have her, and I wanted him to be the one said to getting her pregnant, and so all of this conniving, and all of this scheming, and all of this deception, you're absolutely right, you are justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. David doesn't want to say, well look, I'm here to confess, but don't you think that those punishments that you're meeting out for the rest of my life are a bit too severe? Don't don't you think that the death of this child, and I stopped in the reading, but you know the rest of that reading, don't you? David was beside himself mourning the potential death of his child with the faint hope that God would relent. Don't you think that it's, that it's too severe, God, to say that the sword will never depart from my house and that because I'm a man of bloodshed, I will not be able to build a temple for you? Don't you think that it's a little severe for you to say that this kingdom and those servants, those warriors in battle are giving their life for what I did and that all of this is coming down on my own head as though I'm the sole responsible agent in all of this? What am I doing? I'm giving all the excuses that we all give, myself included, when we come to confess and we say, Lord, I confess that sin, but you know it's because she baited me. It's because so-and-so tempted me beyond my ability to withstand. It was, it was a point, Lord, where I just couldn't do anything else but. But is that so? Because 1 Corinthians ten thirteen says, No testing, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common, such as is human. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able, but with the testing will provide a way of escape, an escape out of a sinful response so that you may be able to endure it. So we can't really make a whole lot of excuses even though we're on our knees praying to God and confessing sin to Him. He sees right through it. So what do we do? We do what David says. You're justified in your words and you're blameless in your judgment. In other words... I'm guilty. I'm totally guilty. God is all about truth. He's all about wisdom. Of course He is. Most certainly He is. 
And what David is acknowledging, look at what he acknowledges in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You know what he's saying by that? I'll tell you what he's not saying. What he's not saying is, well, you see, Lord, uh, in my own conception, my mother was in this fit of passion, and and she got pregnant, and uh, you see, that's kind of what was going on, because I saw Bathsheba, and she was very beautiful, and in a moment of passion, that's not what that's saying at all. You know what that's saying? And sin did my mother conceive me. I was brought forth in iniquity. Here's what he's saying. I sin the way I do because I'm a sinner. I came out of the womb as a sinner. That's the truth of the word of God. The truth of God's word is that none of us come to a place in our 33rd year of life of starting to sin. Right? We all sin. Uh, we're, not, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's what he's saying here. All pregnancies and deliveries of humans into the world, and I think we would all be a part of that, right? We're involved from the very moment of conception. Those who will live a life of sinning. I mean, David is going right down to the core of the sinfulness of the human heart. We are sinners by constitution, and we are sinners by nature and choice. So, David is giving a robust confession. He even says in verse 6, Behold, you, speaking of God, you delight in truth in the inward being. I can't fake it with you. I can't make this up. I can't cover. I can't cover my tracks. You delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And what God is doing is teaching truth and wisdom to David right then and there. And he's saying things like this with truth and wisdom. Don't hide this. Don't hide this. It's like Proverbs 28, 13. He who hides his sin shall not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them shall find compassion. You want to have an easy way to know Proverbs 28, 13? The things we cover, the sins that we cover, God will uncover, just like he did with David. But the things we uncover, we confess, he covers That's a truth from the Word of God, Proverbs 28, 13. If I want to hide my sin, if I want to cover it over, if I want to minimize it, if I want to say, well, it really wasn't that bad, David says the opposite. He he uncovers the sin before the watching world and before God's own eyes, and he says this, I don't even realize the half of it about the sin of my heart. I've sinned all the way from the conception in my mother's womb to my birth to my adult life, and now, God, as I come to pray to you and confess to you, I want you to teach me the truth about myself in the inward parts, and I want you to give me the wisdom, the wisdom that I need in the secret of my heart. That's confession. That is huge. That's huge confession. And what will God do when we pray to him and when we genuinely confess that way? Here's the third outline point. Experience spiritual cleansing. Experience 
spiritual cleansing. Oh, this is when it really starts to be joyful. Because I've prayed to God, and I've confessed my sins, and now this is God's response. Look at verses 7 to 12. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit." You know what all of those words mean? That David is now, by God's grace and gift, experiencing spiritual cleansing. You see, the first two in our our list of five, pray to God, confess your sin, that's your responsibility, that's my responsibility. The third one, experience spiritual cleansing, that can only come from God. That can only come from God. And it comes through the portal of confession and prayer. And this this spiritual cleansing starts right off in verse 7 with, purge me with hyssop. Anybody remember what hyssop is? It's like a plant. It's like a multi-leafed plant that apparently they used, according to the the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 12, verse 22, that said, to those who were in Egyptian bondage, who were of the house of Israel, take hyssop, take that plant, dip it into the blood of the Passover lamb who has been sacrificed for you, and paint the blood on the lintel and the doorposts with hyssop. Hyssop apparently had some kind of a quality about it as a plant in which it either retained it's fluid, or you were able to paint by it, or both. And so what does he say? Purge me with hyssop. I want you to take this blood of the lamb, as it were, and I want you in a ritualistic way, in the sacrificial system, I want you to purge me with the blood that's on the hyssop so that I may be clean. Now, does that not strike in us what our Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, did for us. Through his sacrificial blood, you and I are purged with hyssop. That's what David's asking for. Because he knows, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. How can... How can white snow be whiter? How can it be laundered to be whiter than it is? Well, David says, I don't know, but that's what I want. That's what I want. I need this, Lord. And notice what he says, let me hear joy and gladness. The gladness of forgiveness. Who who wants to be forgiven this morning? Who doesn't care one hoot? I mean, it's so obvious. It's it's an axiomatic truth. Everybody wants forgiveness. Everybody wants to know that their sins are forgiven. And everybody can experience 
a time or two, and maybe you and me more than others, that when we hide our sin and when we're covering our sin and when we won't confess our sin by praying to God and confessing our sins to God, we will not experience not only spiritual cleansing, but we could also even have the physical aspect of our life threatened. I read a, I read a statement uh, many years ago by John Stott, he quoting a psychiatrist in the UK who said this, if my patients knew they could be forgiven, three quarters of them would walk out of this hospital. Why? Because the body and the soul go together. And notice what David says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. You, you know what he says in Psalm 32? You know what he says about his physical life? This is, this is maybe the time in between David's confrontation and Psalm 51's confession. Psalm 32, verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Well, I'll tell you, you, you can... You can Cover and hide your sin to the degree that it even affects your physical life. Greatly detrimentally. No wonder he says, look, yeah, my bones have been broken because of my hiding of my sin, but I now rejoice with joy and gladness. This is, this is it. This is it. This is David receiving full and complete forgiveness, to which we say, hallelujah. He's experiencing spiritual cleansing. I mean, he sincerely asks God to hide his face from David's sin. Do you see that? Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. You say, well, he's already said that in verse 1. Yeah, and you're asking again and again and again? Lord, forgive my sin. Oh, Lord, did I ask you to forgive my sin a moment ago? Please forgive my sin. Please allow me to walk in joy and gladness and rejoicing. Have you blotted out my sins as of yet? Lord, I'm coming to you again. And notice what he says so wonderfully in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit or a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. A lot of spirits in there. A lot of spirits in there. A right spirit or a steadfast spirit. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me, that is from my human spirit. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit creating new life in a willing spirit. See, that's what confession is. It's a, it's a Holy Spirit work of regeneration first and then a continual cleansing so that you and I might have a steadfast spirit. What a joy. I mean, who wouldn't want to run to this kind of forgiveness? And who wouldn't want, after the sins that he's committed, to say, create a new me. Renew me. 
cast me not away from your presence. And someone says, and yeah, and it says, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. What's going on there? Christians who are Christians, bonafide Christians, genuine Christians, they always have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will never go away. That's true. But did you know that in the Old Testament for kings and priests and prophets, they had the Holy Spirit come upon them for seasons so that they could continue to do their necessary work? But like Saul, his predecessor, does it not say that when God was finished with him and that his kingdom was going to be taken away from him forever, that also the Spirit departed? You think David remembers that? And he's saying, I need the Spirit of God in my kingly ministry, my kingly service. Please don't take the Holy Spirit from me. And you know how I know that the Lord didn't take the Holy Spirit from him? Because he's rightly and genuinely confessing, and only the Spirit can do that. He's not... He's not rejecting the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. He's actually receiving it, and he's saying, and here's what it looks like, a new creation, a steadfast spirit, your Holy Spirit will remain with me, and verse 12, you'll restore to me the joy of my salvation, which meant that he'd been walking for a time outside such joy, and that's always happening when people don't confess their sins, and God, please uphold me with a willing spirit. This is... This is none other than a cleansing of the whole man. And this is what happens when we confess our sins to God. And this is what happens when we pray to God. We experience from God, by His hand, by His grace, through His mercy, and His steadfast love, an experiential spiritual cleansing. Number four. Number four. Here's another thing that only God can do. Restoration to service. Restoration to service. Verse 13. And I'll go through these quickly because I know you're looking at your watch. You know, by the way, you know what a watch means to a preacher? Absolutely nothing. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Now you notice what David's doing here? He's saying, God, because I've confessed rightly to you, I've uncovered my sin... I've prayed to you sincerely. You've forgiven me. You've created a new me. I've got a steadfast spirit. I'm alive again. My bones are no longer aching. I'm rejoicing even though my bones have been broken because of my unconfessed sin. But here's the joy. You are restoring me to service. Now I know that in the new covenant age, there would be preachers who would commit the kind of sins that David committed and they would be forever disqualified. And I agree with that. But as the king, who's not a preacher, as the king, who's not a pastor, God chose for his own sovereign purposes to restore him to a place of being the right kind of king. And he was. And that's why Scripture can say, even though David at times was a regular scoundrel, that the Bible says about him, he was a man after God's own heart. And you know why I think the scripture says that about him? Was because David was a righteous man when he was righteous. And he was a huge sinner when he was sinning. And here's the difference. He confessed every known sin of his heart, even at times with the prompting of a prophet. And when 
he sees this forgiveness of God, what does he do? Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. As a result, I'm going to turn around and teach everybody in my presence that you deal with transgressors, that you deal with sinners, and here's what you need to teach them, David, God says. Teach them about my ways. Teach them to return to me. What is return? That's the Old Testament word for repentance. That's that's to turn back. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. What does he mean there? Maybe he's thinking back to the death of Uriah. I've got guilt on my hands. I've got blood on my fingers. I had that man killed. There were others, the the king's servants, the warriors, they were killed. I've got blood on my hands. I'm blood guilty, O God, O God of my deliverance. But because you've forgiven me, because I've confessed the right way, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. And he says in verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. I mean, when David sinned, he sinned hugely. But when he was praising, he was the loudest mouth in the choir. He he wants to open up his lips and his mouth to declare your praise. And why? Because David's confessing the right way. And because he's confessing the right way, he understands this truth. How many people come into, we would say here, church, and they're coming with only their bodies? And maybe they may even have a hand raised, or maybe they may uh, may have their Bible open, or maybe they may bow their head in a word of prayer, but their hearts are far from God. David says, that's sham worship, and I'll tell you what and why. Verse 16, for you, speaking of God, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. In other words, I sinned against Bathsheba, I sinned against Uriah, but ultimately I sinned against you. How many bulls do you want? How many animals? How much sacrificing? And he hears the word of the Lord with this kind of answer. You could do a million of them. And if your heart is not right with me, it matters nothing. Matters nothing. So so what's the answer? You'll you'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. If, If you're not delighting in the whole heart of a man, he's not hypocritical. He's true and he's rightly confessing. No wonder verse 17 says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. That means a humble spirit, a non-hypocritical spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's how God restores somebody to service. Because they're not showing up at the church with sham worship. Oh, their bodies are there. They may have on a, a nice blue blazer. They may have even a member's name tag. I'm a part of the club. But if they come in and their hearts are far from the Lord and they've got unconfessed sin and they're not praying to Him truly and sincerely, they're nothing more than hypocrites. And He says, you can sacrifice all these animals all you want and it means nothing to Me. In fact, it not only means nothing good, it means everything bad and that these offerings are a stench in My nostrils. David says, I want none of that. 
I want to be restored to complete and sincere, non-hypocritical service to the Lord. That's what, that's what forgiveness is all about. That's what repentance is all about. And then five and finally. Five and finally, ask God's blessing. Verses 18 and 19. This is, and this is great. This is fabulous. David is saying, okay, as the king, I want my subjects, my kingdom citizens to realize that when I sin like I've sinned, and when I repent like I repent, if I sin the way I've sinned and I don't confess it, the kingdom goes down, i.e., anybody thought about Saul lately? Or if I repent like I should and confess like I should, pray to God like I should, and I'm restored to service like I desire, then I, as the kingly representative of the whole group, both individually in my own heart as David and collectively with my subjects, we're going to ask God's blessing. We're going to ask God's blessing on our people. That's why I reserve the reading of Scripture and my prayer just before the offering for us because I bring collectively all of us to the Lord. I bring myself individually. You bring yourself individually. You hear my prayer. We'll read Scripture. But when I pray, I'm praying collectively. There's a corporate solidarity. This is our church. And every one of you are an individual in this church, but we're also one church, right? We're individual members of the body, yet one body. And that's what he's saying in verses 18 and 19. Look at it with me. Here's here's how you can ask for God's blessing. This is his prayer again. He starts with prayer and he ends with prayer. Do good to Zion. He's praying to God. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. In other words, please do good to Jerusalem when you believe it's right to do good to Jerusalem. And notice this for protection's sake. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. In other words, when we're all individually right with God then we'll be collectively right with God and He'll receive all of our sacrifices of praise and worship and honor and obedience. That means that whatever you're doing in the dark, whatever I'm doing in the dark, has an effect on what happens here. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about what you're doing that you think is you're doing it in secret Because David certainly thought he was doing some of his deeds in secret. And God says, collectively, I will not receive Israel's sacrifices no matter how many of them are there. Because I want a king who's righteous and I want a people who's righteous. Now you know 2 Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray. Right? This is, this is the collective sense of a, of a nation, of Israel. And is it no less an opportunity for us as Bethany Church to be able to say, look, I'm a part of the body here and what I do on my own time and who I do it with and what I say and how I live and how I act is representative of the whole. 
and what we do together shall see God's blessing on the whole. Because each of the individuals are doing it as individuals for the sake of the whole. And this is, this is to ask God's communal blessing. Could we, could we do that now? Let's bow our heads. Oh, Father, this is both an individual and a collective psalm. This is for all of us. This is what we're to do. This is who we are, both individually and collectively. We've got to pray to you. We have to confess our sins. And we know that when we do genuinely and non-hypocritically, you will allow us to experience spiritual cleansing and restoration to service. And then when we're doing that as we ought, both individually and it spills over into the collective whole, then we can ask you and pray and seek your blessing for the entire group. And we shall and we must. Oh Lord, would you bless this congregation. Bless this your people. Bless this local church. Bring us to a place where we are regularly, all of us, myself included, praying to you, confessing to you, experiencing spiritual cleansing from you and restoration to service from you and asking from you our congregational blessing. May it be so. And may you be praised forever and ever as the all-forgiving God of grace. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.